Hi everyone, my name is Beth. You can call me B. Welcome to Let's Be Real. Hello everyone. Um, as you can probably tell from the title, today's episode will be all about respectability politics. This is something that has been weighing on my mind quite heavily for a while now. So in today's episode, we will be unpacking what is respectability politics, why and how is it harmful, why we should always examine if we are contributing to it personally. But before I really get into it, a content warning. I will be mentioning police brutality, slavery, rape culture, sexual assault, homophobia, and transphobia. So, um... Get ready. It's going to be kind of a heavy episode, I guess. So, what exactly does this term mean? At its most basic definition, respectability politics is a set of beliefs holding that conformity to prescribed mainstream standards of appearance and behavior will protect a person who is part of a marginalized group, especially a black person, from prejudices and systemic injustices. So it is a code of conduct, usually enforced on oppressed or minority groups, detailing appropriate and inappropriate behavior. The term was first articulated in 1993 by Evelyn Brooks Higginbottom in her book Righteous Discontent, The Women's Movement in the Black Baptist Church, 1880-1920. She used it to describe a culture or movement she observed happening in the black American community, It was practiced as a way to consciously set aside and undermine cultural and moral practices thought to be disrespected by wider society, especially in the context of family and good manners. So originally it was a school of thought promoted by black elites to quote-unquote uplift the race by correcting the bad traits of the black poor. By the way, I will be including links in the show notes to articles about this topic in case you want to read more about it. The most tragic thing about this philosophy, school of thought, whatever you want to call it, is that its biggest supporters are usually the marginalized people themselves. And I can sympathize because it's basically a survival mechanism. After decades, centuries even, of the majority telling them that in order to receive better treatment from the group in power, they must behave better, they start to believe it. They were taught from experience and also from propaganda, from patriarchal, capitalist, or white supremacist propaganda, that to get their foot in the door, to have any hope of achieving any sort of upward mobility or respect, you have to play by their rules. But the thing is, you can never win if the game is rigged, and respectability politics is, at its core, forced assimilation. It is a performance, a puppet show. It's gatekeeping oppression. It is a checklist written by the people in power, enforced by the very people they oppress, based on whatever caricature they have in their minds of what an obedient, downtrodden person should behave like. And this checklist is arbitrary. It changes according to their agenda. The goalposts are constantly being shifted because empowering minorities was never the aim of the checklist. The aim was to keep minorities in their place. Of course, respectability politics can be imposed on everyone, no matter their background, but there are three groups or communities that, in my opinion, 
suffer from it the most? One, the black community. Two, women. And three, the LGBTQ community. So let's look at the first group, the black community. Obviously, I am not black. So I encourage you to do your own research and read articles or books from black authors themselves to get a clearer grasp of the situation. Respectability politics, as we know it, um, definitely crystallized in the African-American community. It's the most apparent in the double standards black people face every day in the U.S. All over the world, actually, but uh, we'll just be focusing on the U.S. because that's where this term originated from. You can see this double standard in anything from microaggressions to systemic issues like police brutality or the school-to-prison pipeline. For example, um, a black man in a hoodie is automatically a thug, and if he didn't want to look suspicious, he should have been dressed better. Or a black person with dreadlocks or natural hair is automatically unprofessional. And if they wanted to be treated with respect, they should have hidden their hair or changed it to look more, more like Caucasian hair, because naturally, Caucasian hair is the ideal that we should all aspire to. When George Floyd was murdered by Derek Chauvin, some people implied that he deserved it or he provoked it because he allegedly tried to pay for something with a counterfeit $20 bill. Respectability politics is when a black person is murdered by the police and people will still say they should have complied, they should have done this or that, they should have been dressed like this or that. I mean, what else do they expect, right? And black women have it even worse. They face respectability politics from two angles, for being black and for being women. It's called misogynoir, N-O-I-R, noir. Misogynoir is misogyny directed towards black women, where race and gender both play roles in bias. The term was coined by queer black feminist Moya Bailey, who used it to address misogyny directed towards black women in American visual and popular culture. One of the best examples of this is the stereotype of the angry black woman. A black woman being passionate is automatically angry, or ratchet. Or violent, and if they didn't want to be seen as irrational or as a threat, they shouldn't have shown any sign of emotional distress. Never, not even in emotionally distressing situations. Not to mention how black women are hypersexualized in mainstream media. A black girl, no matter her behavior or how she is dressed, is seen as more mature or sexual compared to a white girl of the same age. A dress being worn on a black body is somehow more provocative or more lewd than that same dress on a white body. Black women are not inherently more sexual than white women, they're just more sexualized than white women. I'm not an expert, so I don't know where this mentality came from, that black women are more sexual or less innocent than white women, but if I had to guess, I would say it's a combination of the male gaze and a holdover from slavery. Because as we all know, women were put on this earth for the sole purpose of men's pleasure, right? I'm being sarcastic, in case that wasn't obvious. And then you pair that with 400 years of chattel slavery, a culture of viewing black people as something less than human. And are we surprised that society feels entitled to black women's bodies? And that's why I get so angry when people, <clears throat> white people, say stuff like, slavery ended, get over it, or... Why should I have to feel guilty for something I didn't do? Because, you slab of unsalted butter, the effects of slavery are still very much alive in the present day, the effects of which you actively benefit from. 
And even if you put the systemic oppression to the side for a second, there will always be a remnant of those 400 years floating around in the cultural psyche, that holdover from white supremacy, that inherent racism that all of us have to unlearn. A lot of white people, and Malaysian people, let's be honest, think racism is something drastic like genocide or slavery or hate crimes, but it's not. Racism is a system. It's insidious, and if you are the racial majority, you benefit from this system, no matter what your personal thoughts on the matter are. So, you could either get defensive and lash out at people, or you could confront your guilt and use your privilege to protect marginalized people and dismantle the system. Anyway, moving on, the second group of people who have to deal with bullshit respectability politics, women. It's a bit of an overlap from the previous group, but that's how it usually goes. You know, everything is connected, and oppression is no exception. Okay, ladies, now let's get information. I have so many thoughts on this. Please strap in. Grab a cup of coffee or something. We'll probably be here for a while. First off, let me get this off my chest. Isn't it weird and fucking creepy how the ideal woman, ideal by society's standards anyway, is like one step up from a doll? or a literal child, small, meek, modest, hairless, I am disgusted. Oh wow, I am disgusted. You better talk to before I do, because I'm already a villain. Women, like children, are supposed to be seen and not heard. Sexualizing children is taboo, but infantilizing women is the norm. And when women deviate from the script, when we decide, actually, no thanks, I want to be my own person, instead of conforming to whatever incel fantasy of an ideal female is, we get punished for it. And not to get all 2016 Tumblr on you guys, but it reminds me of a quote. Slut is attacking women for their right to say yes. Friendzone is attacking women for their right to say no. And bitch is attacking women for their right to call you out on it. This purity culture is so damaging for a woman's self-esteem and self-agency. And just like in the African-American community, the biggest supporters of respectability politics among women are usually other women. And I'm not gonna lie, I sort of envy them a little bit because they're so blissfully unaware. I feel like if you're above the age of 20 and you're still a pick-me girl, then it's because you were privileged or lucky enough to never have that experience, you know? That experience, every feminist origin story, the event that radicalized you. And since they never had to confront or unlearn their internalized misogyny, they still think of the patriarchy as a shield instead of as a cage. And this pick-me phase goes hand-in-hand hand with the whole I'm not like the other girls trope we see in the media. You know the stereotype, the manic pixie dream girl? Um, or, here's a good example, the cool girl speech in Gone Girl, which is, is so good. I am not going to quote it here because it's quite long and that would be obnoxious, but... Yeah, the cool girl speech in Gone Girl. And the thing is, these other girls of which we speak, they don't actually exist outside of the minds of scriptwriters, anyway. To all the women out there, you are not weird or special or unique because you cannot relate to the female characters represented in mainstream media. You're a real human person, so of course you can't relate to them. Of course you're not like them. They're cardboard cutouts. They're plot devices. They're not compelling, fleshed-out characters, they're character arcs for the male protagonist. So there are four female archetypes in media or in culture, whatever you want to call it. Maiden, mother, enchantress, and crone. 
there are certain behaviors associated with each archetype and if you don't behave according to your assigned category or god forbid you refuse to be categorized at all you will be judged for it some of these judgments are easier to bear than others microaggressions or gross comments online are some of the milder ones but some of them are more harmful which brings us to the next aspect of this issue the intersection of respectability politics and rape culture let's talk about the myth of the perfect victim first of all not all sexual assault survivors are women but a vast majority of them are and victims of sexual assault are expected to behave a certain way before during and after the incident they will be asked stupid questions like did you say no did you scream what did you do to provoke it what were you wearing were you drinking why were you drinking were you alone with them why were you alone with them why didn't you defend yourself why didn't you leave we've been taught that as long as you take all the precautions you'll be safe and this is not true and it is extremely harmful it shifts the blame onto the survivors instead of the perpetrators the survivors will be thinking oh if only i was more careful i could have prevented it or i should have known better etc so combine these preconceived notions of how a victim should behave with sexism and you get slut shaming and victim blaming There is no right or wrong way to react after being assaulted. We need to get that idea out of our heads right now. And a survivor in no way shape or form is responsible for their assaulter's actions. No matter what they were wearing or what their occupation or outward presentation, they deserve to be treated with respect. And if you only respect women who you are attracted to, you don't actually respect women. Also, just by the way, this extends to sex workers as well. I hate analogies where women are compared to inanimate objects but I feel like it's the only way to get the message across so please bear with me. If a bank got robbed, would you blame the bank employees for it? Would you say they had an ATM right there? People withdraw money from them all the time. What did they expect? No, right? Because that's ridiculous. When it comes to sex workers and sexual assault, it's always the sex workers who get blamed for it because what were they thinking? Of course, it happened, right? The thing is you don't have to like or endorse their career choice. In fact, you don't even have to understand their motivations. Just don't be an asshole. And if you can, please refrain from participating in that Malaysian pastime, mumbawang. If you're a woman and you've reached puberty, you'll be expected to get married to a cis straight man. If you're married, you'll be expected to pop out a few babies. If you're a working mom, you're probably not giving your kids enough attention. You should quit your job. Stop being selfish and greedy. If you're a stay-at-home mom, I never want to hear you complain about anything ever again. You are lucky you get to stay home and lounge around. Motherhood is your only job. How hard can that be? And if you're a single mom, no, just no. I do not see it. I'm looking away. Anyway, I don't know what else to say about this topic except until we start viewing women as actual human beings with thoughts, feelings, and ambitions of their own. Instead of commodities or investments, we will never break free from this cycle. Okay, moving on. Let's talk about the gays for a second. Let's talk about respectability politics among the LGBTQ community. So, internalized homophobia plays a big part in this, but so does toxic masculinity. Straight men can't drink cocktails or use umbrellas or text with emojis or wear pink because they're afraid of looking too gay. because there's nothing worse than a man looking or behaving effeminately because there is nothing worse than femininity because boys rule and girls drool obviously and for this same reason gay men are penalized if they behave too campy 
or too flamboyantly. You can see this a lot in the gay dating scene. Gay men writing mask for mask or no femmes in their bio. Again, because femininity is gross and inferior. And like I said before, it's all a puppet show. It's a performance designed to put the straights at ease, to not ruffle their feathers too much. It's like, sure, homophobes hate the gays, but you don't have to worry about me. I'm not like those other gays. I'm a cool gay. I'm hip. I get it. You know? And it's not just gay men who internally police their own community. There are lesbians of a more radical nature who penalize other lesbians if they've had prior experiences or relationships with men. There's even a term for lesbians who have never been with a heterosexual man, gold star lesbian, which is kind of funny, not gonna lie, but yeah. Bisexuals and pansexuals are penalized if they're in a heterosexual relationship because that's proof that they're faking it or they're sleeping with the enemy. Asexuals and aromantics are penalized because there has to be something wrong with them, right? How can you not like sex? Oh, what a boring existence they must lead. Trans and non-binary people are penalized for merely existing. Yes, even among the LGBTQ community, transphobia runs rampant. So, campy gays are too gay, bisexuals aren't gay enough, and trans folks are obsessed with passing or fitting in. So which is it? Do you want them to blend in or stand out? And this is what I meant about the checklist being arbitrary. Also, this transphobia in the LGBTQ community is such fucking bullshit, by the way. The LGBTQ community owes so much to people like Sylvia Rivera, Marsha P. Johnson, all the other trans women of color who rioted at Stonewall, and this is how they repay them. Even straight cis people owe so much to trans folks because they showed us how to shift the paradigm to shift our mentality. They showed us that everything is a social construct, and if we could construct it, we can also destroy it. I think Angela Davis said it best, um, to quote her. So, if we want to develop an intersectional perspective, the trans community is showing us the way. And we can't only point to, and we need to point to cases such as the murder of Tony McDade, for example, but we need to go beyond that and recognize that we support the trans community precisely because this community has taught us how to challenge that which is totally accepted as normal. And I don't think we would be where we are today, encouraging even larger numbers of people to think within an abolitionist frame, had not the trans community taught us that it is possible to effectively challenge that which is considered the very foundation of our sense of normalcy. So if it is possible to challenge the gender binary, then we can certainly, effectively, resist prisons and jails and police. We've been brought up with certain notions and norms implanted into our heads that gender is binary. Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. You know, you're either X or Y. But life isn't like that. Gender is a social construct. It's a costume. It's a performance. Sexuality is fluid. It can evolve and change. As soon as a label starts feeling like a prison, throw it away. Anyway, some final thoughts. We all need to take a minute and reflect. Are we contributing to respectability politics? It's often a knee-jerk reaction, a reflex, the urge to judge a person based on first impressions. I read somewhere that the first thing that goes through your mind is how you've been conditioned to think, and then what you think next defines who you actually are. And to a lot of people, they just stop at that first judgmental thought. There isn't any follow-up because they've been taught to think in absolutes, 
people are either good or bad, saint or sinner. And as long as we don't stop at the judgmental thoughts, as long as we examine and reflect deeply, as long as we can say, hey, now, wait a minute, I'm being a judgmental asshole, then I think we have some hope for humanity. But the worst thing about respectability politics is how insidious it is. You're fed this narrative for so long and so consistently that you start to believe it. Soon we won't even need anybody else to judge our actions anymore because our internal voice will do it for us. We have to stop being so hard on ourselves. Instead of trying to fit into society's idea of what respectable should look like, we should start thinking about what respectable means to us, personally. Ask ourselves what we think is admirable and worthy of our respect, and then strive to be that. Strive to be the best versions of ourselves. I guess what I'm really saying is, I feel like we should all just mind our business. Can we try that? Because at the end of the day, respectability politics isn't really about respect at all. It's about control. It's about preserving the status quo. And I don't know if you know this, but the status quo is fucked up. I mean, why uphold cultural norms just for the sake of upholding cultural norms? I think we as a society would benefit greatly from more critical thinking. Take body hair, for example. Why are women expected to be hairless, but men are not? Take marriage. Why is there so much pressure to get married? Why get married at all? Why have kids? Why not adopt? Why the stigma? Why abstain from sex until marriage? Why have sex at all? Do smart women intimidate you? Why do smart women intimidate you? Why should I dress a certain way to be respected? Why does a few inches of cloth change your perspective of a person's worth? Why do you feel like you need to control the way people behave? Why should I know my place? What is my place? Who benefits the most from these rules? Who made these rules in the first place? And so on and so forth and hither and yon. So... That about wraps it up for today's episode. Kind of heavy, but yeah, I felt like I needed to talk about this. I hope you enjoyed it. And as always, let me know if there are certain topics you'd like me to cover to unpack. You know, um, stay safe and have a good weekend, everybody. Bye.